I want to say also thank you to Luke for reading our passage today. So if you haven't already, would you open your Bibles? Because as a church here, um, we know that I have nothing to share that is of significance. Uh, Everything that we want to base our church on is what the Bible says. So what we do is we take a book of the Bible and then we just work through that. And during this fall, we've been working through the book of Galatians. And so we're just going to pick up where we left off last week. Lord willing, we'll conclude the third chapter of Galatians. Probably many in this room appreciate the classics. Whether that's the classics in music, movies, or literature, maybe even classics in automobiles or motorcycles, maybe clothing or furniture or guns or knives. The word classic in the Oxford Dictionary just means judged over a period of time to be one of the highest quality and outstanding of its kind. This morning, the passage of Scripture that is presented before us allows us to talk about classic Christianity. Because we're not only going to be dealing with the cross this morning, but we get to go back to the classic stories of Abraham. Over 4,000 years ago, and Moses around 3,400 years ago, and we see that this message of the gospel is not only current for today, but is actually rooted in this message that we see from the first book of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible. Now, we're in the middle. In fact, we're going to cover the meat of this argument that Paul is making in this book of Galatians. If you're new to this book, let me just give you a quick summary. What Paul is doing in this book is he is making it very clear what the gospel, what the good news of the Bible is. That if you want to be forgiven of your sins, that is to be saved, if you want to be justified, it is only possible by faith alone in what Christ has done for you on the cross and then being raised to life three days later. What has taken place is Paul went into this region of Galatia where there's a number of different cities. He has planted some churches based on this message that you are saved, forgiven, justified by faith alone. A wonderful thing took place. These churches started and were built on this message. But then new people entered these churches. And they filled the minds of all these church members with a different message that says that you are forgiven, you're saved, you're justified by not faith alone, but by obeying the Old Testament law. So what Paul is doing in chapter 3 is he is going back to the classics. He's going back to a time of 4,000 years ago for us, about 2,000 years ago for him, to the first book of the Bible to tell the story of Abraham and how there was a promise given to him that he was saved by faith alone. And then he's also going to go back for us 3,400 years ago to tell the story of another classic, Moses, and how Moses received the law. And we're going to see a very skillful argument being presented by Paul as he anticipates 
or he understands the arguments that are being made by these false teachers. The first thing that they had probably were saying is that we understand that Abraham was saved by faith alone. But around 600 years after that moment, there is the law that was given to Moses. And so the argument that's being presented to Paul is that the law has replaced the promise. If you have an outline that was included in your bulletin, or if you like to take notes, I'm going to give you four statements today. And the first statement is found in verses 15 through 18, and here it is. The law did not replace the promise. Look at verses 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In verse 15, the phrase man-made covenant in the Greek is referring to a will that a, a father and mother would have and write out where the inheritance would go onto their children. Here's the point that he is making. In our world today, when a will is written up, it is binding. It is what the will says. When mom and dad pass away, whatever that agreement is, is what will come to be. And this is the argument he is making, that if man's will is binding, then God's will will certainly be binding. Now, my wife and I, years ago, put together a will, and I'm sure we'll have to update that soon or in a, in a, in a future here. And I was thinking about what would be some specific things that I would want to include in that will. Now, as a father of five... There's one thing that I have learned, never buy anything nice. <laughs> a few years ago, it was necessary for us to update our lawn tractor. And I had a, an idea, now do I buy something new or do I buy something used? Knowing that I want to transfer those duties onto my sons, I bought a $300 John Deere off of Facebook Marketplace. And over that time, we had been nursing this long tractor along. At one time, it leaked oil. Gasket needed to be replaced. One time, it really smoked. The mowing deck has needed to be welded. The, the mowing belt continually falls off and needs to be replaced. The hood itself has been cracked and recracked, and it's been put together by, by really like twist ties. And now it's crooked. But you know, it still mows. And I thought, you know, that'd be something good to include in the will. <laughs> and to say to Joshua, Joshua, this is your lawn tractor when I die. <laughs> and here's the point, is that if that were in writing, no one could interrupt that. It is binding. And so what Paul is doing is he is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If a human will is binding, then the promise that God made to Abraham, that is still in place. 
And so we look a little bit further in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offspring, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? Now, if we want to go back to the classics, we want to go back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis, let me read to you that promise found in Genesis 12, the first three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now God's original promise was to Abram, to Abraham, that he would be the father of a nation. In addition, he would have this land. But the point that verse 16 is making is that promise extended beyond the life of Abram onto an ancestor, a seed, an offspring of his to Jesus. You see, Jesus was that offspring. And from Jesus, all the nations would be blessed. God's promise was more than a nation and the land, but it was eternal life through Jesus. Verse 17 says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, as so as to make the promise void. Now what Paul is doing is he's making an argument, and he is saying that Abraham was made right with God. He was justified. He was declared righteous. He was forgiven. He was saved by faith alone. And that took place hundreds of years before Moses even received the law. And then verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. I want to take you back to the classics because in that 15th chapter where that promise is made to Abraham, you remember there's a vision. There's a scene of a covenant. This might seem strange to us, but what God had Abraham do was to take some animals. And you remember what he did with those animals? He cut them in half. And he put one side over here and the other side of that animal over here. And this is how they did a covenant back then. Two people would walk between those animals. And it was as if to say, if I break my covenant, feel free to cut me in half. I mean, this is binding. But then Abraham went into this dream. And do you remember there was this burning pot? And this burning pot represented God himself. And it was the burning pot that went between these animals. Abraham never did. And here was the point. Abraham could never keep this covenant. God alone would keep this covenant. God alone would keep this promise. You see, the covenant through Abraham and Jesus is based on a promise. The covenant that we'll learn about from Moses was based on obedience. And we're not very good at obeying so the first thing that we see here is that the law did not replace the promise. 
So Paul is anticipating a question. Well, well, Paul, if the law cannot save us, well, then what good is the law? And that's the question that he answers next. The second statement I have for you that Paul has for us is that God gave the law to remind people they needed the promise. Look what it says in verse 19. Well, why then the law? Why do we even have this law if it can't save us? Well, Paul's going to answer that. It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom he, the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Why did we have this law? Well, what we learn from the scriptures is that the law reveals sins. Just look at Romans. Romans 3 verse 20 says, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 4 15. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 7 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known I'd sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law helps us to understand we need the promise. And what he is saying in the second part of verse 19 and into verse 20 is there's a difference between the law and the promise. The promise was given directly from God to Abraham. But the law was given from God to an angel to Moses. There was a third party communication that took place. So now another question emerges from this that Paul is anticipating. Okay, you're telling us, Paul, that the law cannot save. Are you telling us then, Paul, that there's a contradiction between the law that was given to Moses and the promise that was given to Abraham? Here's a third statement. The purpose of the law is not to give salvation or forgiveness of sins or justification, but to show we need salvation. The purpose of the law is not to give salvation, but to show we need salvation. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. They don't contradict one another. For if law had been given that could be give life, then the righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Perhaps you've heard this in other places like the book of James where the law serves as a mirror to us. So we look in the mirror and the mirror reveals to us the dirt on our face or the, the pimples on our face. Or there's been more than one occasion where I wake up real early for an early morning meeting and I need to, to shave. And in haste, I shave. Only later to find out as I stand before a different mirror, all sorts of strips of whiskers that I missed, typically below my nose and maybe on my chin. Now here's a weakness of a mirror. A mirror can reveal to us our imperfections. 
But a mirror can't do anything about solving those imperfections. I'm yet to see a mirror that can duel as not only revealing my whiskers, but then to shave my whiskers. I have yet to see a mirror that can reveal the dirt on my face and yet morph into a bar of soap that can wash the dirt off my face. So the mirror reveals, but it can't clean. And in this passage, we see two metaphors that speak of the purpose of the law. In verse 23, one of the metaphors is it imprisons us. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. Do you see it? The law imprisons us. It uses this word here, held captive. In the Greek, it's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 5, verse 6, to speak about how a net was cast and held captive all these fish. These fish have no chance of surviving. They are all bound together. And that is what the law does to us. It reveals our sin. It shows us that we cannot escape our sin or the consequences of that sin. Here's a second metaphor that we see in verse 24. It is that of the guardian or the schoolmaster. So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Well, what was this guardian? We need to build a little cultural bridge here from our year to go back 2,000 years ago to understand what a guardian was. For a wealthy Greek or wealthy Roman family, they would hire a slave that would serve as their schoolmaster, their guardian. And it would be this person's responsibility to make sure that the children got to school. It would be this person's responsibility to discipline them if necessary. It would be their responsibility to to teach some elementary lessons to them. But the guardian was all about preparation and would quickly give way to when the teacher arrived. It was the guardian's responsibility to to lead towards maturity, but it could not deliver all of that. And this is what the law does to us. It reveals to us our sin. It disciplines us. But the law only prepares us for the master teacher, the Savior, who will ultimately save us from our sins. You see, the law has a necessary function In our forgiveness of sins. The law shows us that we need to be forgiven. Imagine this week, you, your family, your friend are are downtown Green Bay. And you're on Broadway. And as you are walking down the sidewalk, you see a person with a large sign. And on that sign, it says, I have found the cure for the X." Y, Z, disease, and I will give it to you freely. And you and your friend, your relatives say to one another, that dude is nuts. I not only know nothing about this disease, but I know for one thing, I have no need for a cure for this disease. But what if earlier on that same day, 
you went to a doctor for your routine checkup. And it was there the doctor came into the office with a very sobering look on his face. And you could tell he'd actually been weeping. As he looks to you and says, uh, we just performed a battery of tests. And I'm afraid I have some very bad news for you. There is a new disease that is sweeping across our land. It's called the XYZ disease. And within a few weeks, you will be experiencing some of the most intense pain that has been known to man. Not only this, your mind will go. You will forget the most basic things and you will forget your loved ones and your friends. And to make matters worse, we have nothing for these symptoms. And we have nothing that will help cure this. I would go ahead, go home, and get your affairs in order. Now imagine you left that office and you went down Broadway and you saw a person that says, I have a free cure that I am willing to give. It would change everything, wouldn't it? Suddenly you would run to that person and say, how is it? How is it that I could be freed from this disease? How is it that I could have life? Well, this is the function of the law. The law shows us we need Jesus. And may I say to you, one of the most loving things that we can do to our children, to our grandchildren, to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, is to share with them the moral law that God has given to us so that they can understand that they have a need for a Savior. To be able to say to our children, yes, we are all worshipers, but often we worship something other than God. And we often create God in our own image and we degrade His reputation when we take His name lightly. We don't rest in Him when we fail to honor our parents. We murder others with our words and our actions. Our impurity leads us to commit adultery in our hearts. And we take what doesn't belong to us and we deceive and tell half-truth and we fail to be content. So we covet Oh, how we need this holy law. The classics that was brought down to us by, by Moses. Not all of that law is relevant for us today, but these Ten Commandments reveal to us our sin. So we are aware that we need the promise of salvation by faith through Christ alone. Well, this leads us then to the fourth and final statement. And that is when we place our faith in Jesus, we are saved from the penalty of the law. Look at what it says in verse 26. Uh, let me back up to verse 25. But now that faith has come, we no longer are under a guardian. We don't need that guardian. We don't need the schoolmaster anymore. Because the law has showed us our sin. Christ has come. And now He is the one who can save us from our sin. For in Christ Jesus, verse 26, you are all sons of God 
through faith. Our identity has changed. At one time we were imprisoned, a prisoner. At one time we were just a school child in need of a guardian. But now, through faith alone, we are sons or daughters of God. Verse 27 tells us, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now this requires some explanation. Because when we read that word baptized, we're in a Baptist church. What we often consider is water baptism. But this word baptism actually just means to submerse, to dip into. And in the Bible, there's not only a water baptism, but there is a spiritual baptism as well that is dry. And what he is referring to here in verse 27, it means that we, by faith, are immersed in the work of Christ. The context tells us that. Because the whole point of the book of Galatians is that we are saved by faith alone. If this were referring to water baptism, that verse would contradict the whole book. And then we see that we are clothed. Another wonderful metaphor provided for us. Children wear children's clothes. In the Roman society, there were certain clothes that only children would wear. But at a rite of passage, when that child would enter into adulthood, they would receive new clothing that everyone knows now that they are an adult. And the law prepared us as a child, ultimately put on the new clothes of Christ. Verse 28 tells us there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. There are no favorites. The law divides. Christ unites. Now verse 28 has been misused in recent days, hasn't it? Is the lines of gender have been blurred. As if to say a male and a female are basically the same. Didn't you see what it says here in verse 28? But that is not at all what Paul means here. They are distinct. They are different. Yet, under the cross, they are equal in value to God. And then we see here in verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is classic Christianity. This amazing event that took place over 4,000 years ago to Abraham, listen, has a bearing on your life. As he was saved by faith alone, by grace alone, so are you by faith alone, by grace alone. And we have an opportunity to be heirs of that same offspring, of the seed of Christ. As he died and went into the ground and came up to bring a harvest, we are a part of that harvest. Let me conclude with a little story that I came across this week. 
It's a story of a, of a professor. His name is Frank Craddock. He was a professor of homiletics at Phillips University, and he'd been grinding for quite a while, and he decided to his wife, hey, let's get out of town, and let's go on to Gatlinburg, and we'll go down to the Smoky Mountains, and we'll just go some, for some relaxation. So the doctor, Dr. Craddock, and his wife were in Gatlinburg, and one evening they decided to go out for a restaurant for a nice, quiet, relaxing meal. And while they sat down in this restaurant, they couldn't help but notice this elderly, white-haired man that was going from table to table talking to people. Now, all that Dr. Craddock wanted was some alone time, and he was wondering in his mind, is this guy coming to our table? And before he could even think of the answer to that question, guess who was at the table? This elderly, white-haired man. He said, my name is Ben Hooper. I'm just curious. Uh, who are you? My name is Frank Craddock, and this is my wife. Well, where are you from? Well, we're actually from Oklahoma. Well, uh, I've never been to that state, but I heard a lot of wonderful things. What kind of things do you do there in Oklahoma? He said, well, I'm a professor of homiletics at Phillips University. Oh, you're a professor, and you teach pastors? Uh, well, yeah, I do. I want to tell you my story. I've got a pastor story. And Dr. Craddock thought to himself, oh, my goodness, here we go again. Everyone's got a preacher story. And all I want to do is just sit down and relax. And now I got to sit and listen to this white-haired guy telling me his story. So Mr. Hooper, the older man, said to him, Now many years ago, just on the other side of this mountain, I was born in a small little town. And I was born to my mom, but I didn't know who my father was. Now back in those days, that was a real problem. When I went to school, everyone knew me as the, as the boy that didn't have a dad. And they had a name for me. I won't even repeat it. Not only this, as bad as school was, on Saturday mornings, when everyone was out of school and they were downtown hanging out with one another, that was even worse for me. It was as if there was a cloud of shame that just followed me wherever I went as I wore the scar of not knowing who my daddy was. And when I was around 12 years old, a new pastor came to our church. One Sunday morning we were in church. I typically would arrive late and leave early so I'd have to mingle with the people. But the pastor, for some reason, cut the service short that day. Ended it with a benediction. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm in this room full of people. And I got to make my way out the door surrounded by all these people. When I got out to the door, there was this new pastor saying goodbye to everyone as they were leaving. He held out his hand and he said in a loud voice, And who might you be? What family do you belong to? Uh, who is your father? And he could feel the shame just creep up all over him once again as there was this stunning Scene where it's looked like everyone was watching this scene. And with a quivering lip, he looked up. And the pastor had been told by someone as this time went by that he was actually the son of a father who no one knew who it was. And the pastor said to him, Oh, wait a minute. I see the resemblance. 
Aha, it's coming to me now. I know who your dad is. Your dad is God. Your dad is the great king of the universe. And then he slapped him on the back and said, Now, son, go claim your inheritance. Now they're at the restaurant. Ben Hooper, the old man with the white hair, looked at that preaching professor and he said, Listen, that was the single most important sentence that I have ever heard in my life. Y'all have a good meal. It's good to meet you. And he went on to the next table and on to the next table. As the hours passed and as the days went, Dr. Craddock thought, man, I know that name, Ben Hooper. Ben Hooper, who is it? And then he realized that he was the governor of Tennessee. What I want you to hear this morning is that there's a promise available to you. It drops all the way back 4,000 years ago to you today. The message from the Bible runs through the very beginning to the very end that the only way that you can be saved is by what God has done for you by sending Christ to the cross for you. It's by faith alone. Let the work of the law have its way with you. John Stott said it this way, Not until the law has bruised and spitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we long for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. And not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. You see how the law complements the promise. We need the law. It shows us that the promise is fulfilled in the offspring of Abraham, Jesus. What good is this? It's just a story unless you make it personal. Have you trusted in this news by faith alone? Don't mix it with any of your works. Trust in what Jesus has done for you alone. He alone is our salvation. Let us pray together. As the music team comes, how affirming, how confirming it is for us that when we read the scriptures, we can go back to the classics, our great God, and we can look at Abraham And that's not just a story. What took place there in the 12th and the 15th and all those chapters there in Genesis is very personal to us. We read that and we are excited. He believed in you and you counted it to him as righteous. We can look at Moses and say, okay, a lot of those laws, well, they don't apply to us, but... But there's this moral law, these Ten Commandments that's been written on our hearts. 
and it's healthy for us to understand the clear expectations of that law because it reveals your character. And we want to be more like Jesus. We've learned today that we could never keep this law. What the promise says is you, Father, saying, I will, I will save those who place their trust in what Jesus has done for them. May we value the law and may we also worship you because you've saved us by faith alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.